Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Grace. You guys will stand with us. Let's sing it out together. You can put your hands together with us if you'd like to. Sing it together. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Don't your God, don't your heart, don't your soul, don't your mind, don't your strength. All right, singing out, Grace. I will serve the Lord with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength. Serve the Lord with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength, with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength. I will serve the Lord with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength. For you to fall, I lay me down 
before your throne And I will lift my heart, my soul, my mind to you alone For whom have I but you? Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you've not known? And then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say we are safe? Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Father, we gather as a people here and we confess. We confess that often... We use your name as a cover for our sin, and our hearts, our hearts don't run after you, but they run after our, our self and our own desires. And Lord, we confess that we are a, a people that sin, 
we admit that before you. We don't gather here saying that, that we're people that have it all together or we do the right things all the time. But we confess sinful, wandering hearts. Lord, we also come here and we gather together seeking you, seeking your grace because we know that you're the only solution to that problem. We know that although we are the problem, you are our hope and you're the one that we've been longing for and expecting and looking forward to that would be the hero and be the rescue that we need. So we continue to worship you not only as those that confess that we sin, but as those that confess that you are gracious and you forgive and you save. So Lord, we pray that you would fill our hearts with joy and that you would change us as we grow in that knowledge and that reality. We pray in Jesus' name. Born to set thy peace. 
God, we pray that our lives will shout that out, God. Glory in the highest. God, that we, we pray that you will help us to lift you up above everything in our lives. God, and to understand that you are the most important thing there is. God, help us to live out the reason for which we were created. God, to show love to you and show love to others, God, and we pray that you'll help us to trust you with our lives. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Good morning. If you will open up your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, we have some black Bibles under the chairs. You can grab one of those. And before we really get started, though, I wanted to ask, did anybody leave this here last week? Your thing? Okay, just, just checking. It was just driving us crazy around the office. We were like, what in the world is this? I, I don't know. It's, it's got a left and a right. But I don't, I don't know what to do with it. All right. If you're embarrassed, you can just see me afterwards about that. So I'm dying to know what that is. Matthew 21. We're continuing our series called Kingdom Come in the book of Matthew. And I thought about coming up with a subtitle now for the last few chapters of Matthew. I was thinking Smackdown. Because there is this, this confrontation that's really happening. And it's getting kind of hotter and hotter as, as we get closer to Jesus going to the cross, we see Jesus confronting the religious leaders of his day and kind of again and again saying, you're not, you're not doing what God called you to do. You're not living out your, your role. You're not being good stewards of what God has given you. Um, and today we're calling this the king's house, and we'll see his confrontation with uh, the Jewish leaders over how the temple space is being used. Uh, the temple is supposed to be the dwelling place of God, supposed to be the place where people see God and understand who he is. And he's going to confront them about misusing about uh, about using it uh, in the wrong way. And, and I wanted to read, I read a little bit of, of Jeremiah 7 earlier, but I want to read this to give you a little background about kind of what was going on. And Jeremiah 7, 1 says, this is, the Lord, uh, this is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We, we have these kind of religious uh, things we repeat, these religious motions that we go through, and apparently they were saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They were claiming almost like a superstitious protection, because this is God's dwelling place. And, and claiming that knowledge that this is where God lives and this is what he's doing in the world. And, and I think the church can be, the church can be uh, in trouble. We can sometimes do that ourselves. We can say we're God's people, we're the church, and we can kind of go about our business and, and do our religious things, live out our religious ceremonies, not really having a heart that is connected with God's heart, not really doing what God has called us to do. And Jeremiah is, is convicting them of the same thing. In verse 5 he says, If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your forefathers forever and ever. But look, you're trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. 
And then he goes on, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you've not known. And then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. And he's saying again and again, his people weren't, weren't living out his priorities in the world. And so having the trappings of being God's people doesn't make us safe. Having the external titles and having the roles and, and having names, you know, having a nameplate that says church, says God's people, doesn't make us God's people. And just as God's Old Testament people were guilty of that, we today can be guilty of that as well, of, of saying, I'm a Christian, using his name, like he's talking about there, but not really living out who we are to be as God's people. Loving the oppressed, caring for the fatherless and the orphan, the widow. Are we those kinds of people? Do, do we just claim his names? Are we superstitious? Do we say we're safe, we're safe, we've got this title? Or do we really live out what God's called us to? Um, more background I want to add, too, is that, that we know that, that the temple was kind of his, his Old Testament house, right? We know the temple was destroyed in AD 70. And we know again and again Jesus made it clear that really he was the true temple. And that they no longer needed the physical temple because Jesus was spiritually the temple. He was the place. He was Emmanuel, God with us. He was the place where people meet God. And so Jesus is the, is the revealer of God. He is the house of God. He's the one that reveals God to us. And so he's made that clear. So there's no longer a need, right, for the physical temple. And then the New Testament writers after Jesus kind of blow that up and help us to see not only is it Jesus, but we as God's people, as the people of Jesus, are also God's temple. And that's corporately as we gather, and also individually as we are scattered in the world. We are his presence to reveal him to others, to show him what God is, or to show the world what God is like. Okay, so we have this role, we have this duty to be God's temple, his house, just as Jesus was ultimately the real house of God. And so today we're calling it the king's house because what we see is Jesus going in and, and seeing the, that the religious leaders of their day were not running his house the way it was supposed to be run. And he kicks them all out, and he says, this is what my house is supposed to be about. So we're going to learn a lot today about what we should be as, as the king's house, how we should live, both as individuals and as, as just a local church. Um, so let's read Matthew. It's going to be 21, 12 through 17. It was a very long introduction, but we have a very short passage today. So it's Matthew 21, 12 through 17. It says, Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. The other Gospels tell us that he put together a whip. I mean, he drove people out. This isn't the, the, the smiling hippie Jesus. It's meek and mild, right? He is, he's serious and he is cleaning house, saying this is not what my house is supposed to be for. And he's, he's throwing people out, physically driving them out, turning over their tables. Verse 13, it is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer. But you are making it a den of robbers. Not just those that steal, but just criminals. A den of, of criminals. Verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. And when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. Let's pray. 
God, we, we ask you to teach us. I pray that your spirit would, would come so that we would not be relying on our flesh, that we would not rely, be relying on our, our self um, to, to be your house and to take care of your house. But that as it, as it says in Galatians 5, that we would be walking in the spirit, that your spirit would reveal to us how to be your people, that your spirit would empower us, that we wouldn't be self-reliant, but we would be reliant on you. So we ask you to come to teach us to open our eyes. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I still remember this, this frustration uh, that I felt. And uh, someone said they saw my wife afterwards, and it, it made her sick just hearing me tell the story. Um, but we, we had been gone for a summer and, and had come back to our house to find it just kind of a big mess. Well, you know, like a train wreck. Like it just, it was a disaster. It was when we were in the middle of our seminary years, and I had... Uh, gotten an internship back at our home church in Temple just for the summer, so I was going to be leading college and singles ministry just for the summer in the middle of seminary. So we were staying with Grandma, and then we had, after that was all done, driven back home, you know, the 16-hour drive, came in and found that the people that had been renting our place from us had just left it a total wreck. I mean, it was just disgusting. Um, and if those of you that, that know my wife can imagine what that was like, because she likes things very neat and, and orderly. Um, it was even disgusting to me, and those of you that know me know I can be pretty dirty, um, but, but it was even disgusting to me. I mean, it was just, it was so frustrating. We, we were so angry. I mean, these guys were in their late 20s and 30s, but apparently had never learned to dust or to scrub a bathroom or to vacuum or anything like that. Um, they, they had at least attempted to vacuum. They'd at least gotten the vacuum cleaner out and tried to vacuum, um, but apparently it was jammed and there was a problem. And so we came in and we saw our vacuum cleaner taken apart in the middle of our floor with the contents of the bag just kind of all spilled out right there in the middle of the floor. And that was what we found. And of course we were frustrated, we were mad, we thought, why, why didn't they take care of our house? Why didn't they take care of our place, you know? Um, and so immediately I, I went to clean house. I mean, the first thing I did, our kids are, you know, crying, we've been driving for 16 hours, my wife's upset, everything's kind of a mess. So I go to meet our new neighbors that had just moved in the week before and say, hey, I'm your new neighbor. Can I borrow your vacuum cleaner? And, and go and borrow a vacuum and just start trying to clean it up, right? Just try to take care of things. Try to put it back in order. And that's kind of what we see Jesus doing when he comes into the temple here. He's trying to put it back in order. Um, he's upset. He's angry because they've not been using it the way it's supposed to be used. Um, and and he's, he's pushing people out. He's trying to clean things up and he's trying to get things back in order the way it's supposed to be run. This is not the way his house is supposed to be used. And he's saying, this, this is what my house is for. And as we go through it, he kind of lays out a few different principles. There's one thing that he says, like, this is what my house is supposed to be. And then there's a couple of other things that he, that he lives out for us to show it, to show us this is what my house is supposed to be. The first thing is he tells them what it's supposed to be. He says it's a place for all nations to pray. In just verse 12 and 13, he says, this is a place where all nations can come to pray. That is, that's what it's supposed to be here for. I'll read again 12 and 13. Jesus entered the temple area. He drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. Like I said earlier, literally that could just mean a criminal, not necessarily someone stealing something, but a lot of times in this day, that, that Greek word lestes was, was used to talk about people that were like terrorists. Just any kind of criminal. You know, we, we talk about uh, the two criminals hanging on the crosses next to Jesus, and most people understand him to be Barabbas being some kind of insurrectionist. 
probably, that he was some kind of zealot you know, that was fighting Rome as a terrorist to get them off of the Jews' backs. And so it could really mean any kind of violent criminal. And so we have this, this hint of people taking the law in their own hands. We also have this hint of nationalism, because that's the way the word was used a lot of times, of nationalistic terrorists, insurgents. We're kind of familiar with that terminology here. And he's saying, you're, you're making it into a place of, of criminals, where people are, are fighting and they're violent, uh, and they're doing all this for self or for nation, but they're not about God's priorities. They're not really about God's priorities, but they're violently trying to assert their own will as criminals. And specifically, we see that there were money changers, they were selling doves. So these were guys that were actually kind of part of, of the work of the temple, right? They were changing money so that, so that people using other currency from other places could pay the temple tax, right? Could, could be a part of the temple worship. And they were also selling doves, which is what the poor people would, would give as sacrifices because they couldn't afford a lamb or, or something bigger, you know, a bowl, a bowl or something like that. So they would sacrifice doves. And so what they're doing is, at one level, you can see how they're excusing it, right? The, the religious leaders are rationalizing what they're doing because they're saying, hey, we're, we're enabling the religious machine to roll forward. We're, we're enabling the religious machine to be carried out so people can do their religious things and be good people and be religious. But Jesus is saying, this is not what my temple is for. They're, they're clogging up the court of the Gentiles. There's basically this extended area of porticos. So this, this, you know, back then with no air conditioning, this was a great place to gather. The wind could blow on the top of the hill. These were all these stone porticos, covered porches, where people would come, all the nations, the court of the Gentiles or the nations, the other people, non-Jews, coming to worship God, to pray to God, to seek the God of the Hebrews and understand who he really was. And Jesus is saying, that's what should be happening here. We shouldn't be all worried about the religious machine and making money. And, and exalting self, we should be worried about the nations coming in. And I, I found a, uh, well, first of all, I just wanted to quote Isaiah 56 before we look at the picture I found. But Isaiah 56 is, is one of the verses where it talks about what, what the uh, temple is for. In Isaiah 56, 6 and 7, he says, And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord, and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. And I'll give them joy in my house of prayer. So he's saying foreigners will come in and worship, <clears throat> worship God. And what was happening here was the Jews were, were being very nationalistic and making it very difficult for the foreigners to come in and worship God. They were, they were you know, putting up more barriers to them. And they rationalized it by saying, hey, we're enabling them to become a part of the machine. But they were actually adding more burdens. And we'll see that later on as we see the, Jesus condemning the Pharisees for how difficult they make it on outsiders. He says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. All along, it was God's plan to reach all nations. We see that God called a special people and he, he put them at this crossroads, Israel. When, when you look at a map of the ancient world, Israel was right in the middle of every empire that's ever existed. They were right in the middle. You couldn't get to anywhere else in the ancient world without going through Israel. They were the crossroads, and God strategically placed them right at the crossroads to be a witness to all the other nations, not just to be a nation all about themselves. And too often that's what churches are. We're all about ourselves, and we're not for others. And God says all, all along it was his plan to be for the nations. We think this is some kind of like new idea that God came up in the New Testament, right? 
Oh yeah, they didn't really care about anybody in the Old Testament. They were just about the Jews. But now they're for the whole world. No, we see in Isaiah, hundreds of years before Christ, that that was always God's plan. They were always for all the nations to be a light to the Gentiles. Gentiles is literally just the word for the other peoples, the other nations, the other peoples out there. And so the picture I found, which I think leads us to, to, to see what we should be here, is an open door. I don't know if you can make that out. It's just kind of black and white. But it's basically just a door being cracked open. And we should be an open door. And Jesus was saying they should have been an open door, not a slammed shut door, not a locked door, making it more difficult, putting more religious machinery in the way to make it more difficult for people to see God and understand him. But an open door, an inviting door. These, these porticos, the court of the Gentiles or the court of the, the nations, was a place where people were to be welcomed in. And church should be that way as well. We should know that God is about the nations and all the other peoples, and he's not just about us. I mean, the only way, we've said this again and again, the only way we even qualify to be here is by being sinners that need God in our life. Like, that's what gets us in the door here. And then somehow the switch is, is thrown, and we start to think that we've got some kind of special status, and, and, it's, and we're the good people, and it's all the bad people out there, and, and they're the problem, and, and we've got it all together. God says, no, you're, the whole world is broken. And as people start to see that their only hope is in Jesus Christ, that their only hope is in God and in coming to him, then, then we can invite others to that. We, we should just be the people that realize we've got a problem and realize that God is our only hope, and we should be inviting people through that open door, saying, come on in, come on in. We should be welcoming people. We should be hospitable. There's two core practices that we have as a church, and what I want to do today is just kind of try to make our applications fit with our core practices. You know, it's beginning of a new school year. It's Labor Day weekend. And so I want us to think about what are the core practices? We list them in our little, you know, our little visitor card and the website. And what do those have to do with God's desire for the church? One of them is prayer, that we should, we should be a place of prayer that calls on the, the power and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Prayer basically means calling on God, asking God, talking to God. And we should be a place that's about prayer, a place that, that we come together to call on him. And there's different ways you can do this. I think sometimes it, it helps to, to try different ways of prayer, different styles of prayer, uh, to think about ways that you can pray through the mundane tasks of your day, to start setting aside specific time, saying, I'm going to pray at a certain time every day, or setting an alarm or something to remind you, praying through the scriptures, praying with friends, praying in small groups. You know, we're always uh, encouraging you to get in small groups with each other and community. Uh, but there's different ways that you can pray. I think we need to remember what prayer is. It's basically just coming to God. It's asking God really for two things, right? It's asking him for his glory and for our good. We're seeking his glory and we're seeking our good. And sadly, we usually separate those into two different buckets, right? We think, you know, God's glory over here, that's the praise God. And a lot of times if you're a you've been religious for a while, you've learned how to kind of say the nice things to God, bribe him up front, and then you can start asking him for the good things that you want, right? And we kind of do these things to kind of make our prayers orthodox. Yeah, we know we're supposed to say, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done. Okay, we throw that into the prayer, and then we start asking him for our daily bread and what we really need. And God, I really need you to move those neighbors because they're a real problem. And I'm just joking because actually some of my neighbors are here. But, you know, we pray about those, <laughs> those things like, you know, or this, this person in my workplace, they're just... God, they're really rubbing me the wrong way, and if you could just take care of that, then all of my life would be good. And, and we tend to disassociate God's glory from our good and think that, that really God just needs to change our circumstances. 
But I think Jesus presses us to, to bind those together, that, that his glory and our good go together. And sometimes what is most glorifying for him and what's really most good for us is not the relief of our immediate circumstances. It's not just fixing that problem that's really bugging us right now. And as we go to him in prayer, seeking his glory and seeking our good and knowing that they're tied together, he begins to enable us to see that. That, okay, God, maybe it's for your glory that I'm enduring this right now. And maybe you have a different plan in mind than what I've been thinking about. The other thing that we do that's a core practice here is we, we support world missions. If you look at our visitor card or on the website, it says we're involved both financially and relationally in world missions. Uh, we, we set aside 10% of our general giving here at the church to world missions to continue to make that a priority. And the greatest amount of that 10% goes to people that are trying to reach the ends of the earth. You know, the, the people that are basically unreached, unengaged, don't have, either don't have any uh, gospel presence at all among that people group, or if they do, it's, it's statistically minimal. There's hardly anything there, there at all. Um, and so that's what we give priority to, reaching the ends, reaching all the nations. We also try to reach um, nations that are different than ours, but they may have some witness, and we give a little less funds to those. And those are places like Germany and Mexico where it might be easier for us to engage people in short-term trips because we're not that far off um, culturally from those cultures. And then we also have some local missions, and we give the smallest amount to those local missions. But we try to prioritize financially that we will be a, a community a house of believers that gives money to world missions. And we also want to engage you guys in the process as well. And we have a missions committee that tries to work to support those guys. We also want everybody in, engaged in that, praying for them, um, praying for our missionaries. We had a uh, missions board up, and then we changed all our classrooms around and have to get it back up. But we're trying to get that information out so you can be praying for them, knowing who they are, that you can be supporting them uh, physically, relationally, talking to them, emailing them. And we're trying to put together more opportunities so we can actually go, too. So that'll be a very practical thing that we can do and go visit them and go see them and try to be there with them. The other thing that Jesus tells them, not only should his house be a, a place for all nations to pray and to seek God, but his house should be a place for the, the lame to be healed. It should be a place for the lame to be healed. In Matthew twenty-one fourteen, it says, The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. This is a refrain that we've heard a lot throughout Matthew, right? And Jesus healed many there, and he taught many people there, and he healed many people there, and he taught many people there. And we see this again and again, that this keeps happening, that this is part of what Jesus does. This just kind of flows out of him. He continues to heal people and help people. And we believe that we should be a place where that happens as well. We need to understand that, uh, that many beggars um, and sick people couldn't come into these outer courts even because... The nature of the disease, they were unclean, they could infect others, or they were ceremonially unclean, and so they weren't allowed to be a part of it. But we see again and again that Jesus isn't afraid of their uncleanness, um, that, that there may have been good reasons and good lessons that God was teaching them about being clean and being holy, but Jesus is different in that he says, I'm going to touch them and I'm going to bring healing. So he's not worried about getting infected himself with their uncleanness, but he's actually infecting them with cleanness with purity. And I think there's a lesson in that for us as the church, that we shouldn't be afraid of sinners. We see this lived out where Jesus was known as, as being a friend of sinners, those that loved outsiders. And obviously we need to be careful that, 
you know, if there's a particular area of struggle for you, you, you may need to break ties with friends that continue to, to just drag you down in the, in the same sins you've, you've been struggling with for a long time. But in general, Christians should not cut off all ties from the world. Paul makes it very clear in Corinthians when he says we shouldn't, we shouldn't be judging the sins of the world. We should only judge sins on the inside of the church because we should be holy here as God's people. But we should expect people outside and outsiders to be sinners. That's what they do. We shouldn't cut off all communication with them. We shouldn't retreat from them. We should befriend them. We should love them. We should enter into their world. And we see Jesus living this out. He's healing the lame. He's healing the sick. The broken are coming in, and he's, he's touching them. He's healing them. There's, there's two core practices that we practice here where we try to help set people straight. I had a picture here of a, a broken arm. You know, when you break your arm, the doctor has to set it, make sure it's in the proper position, then he puts a cast around it to hold it, to stabilize it, and to help it grow in a healthy way. And there's two things that we do. One, we, we have small groups. And if you read our core practices, it says we try to develop smaller groups where people can, can have authentic relationships of encouragement, where we can do real community together, and we can encourage each other, and we can pray for each other's sins that we may be healed, to use the, the language of James, that, that we would come together for healing that we would do life together, recognizing we're, we're still broken. Like I said, our, our qualifications for being church people is being messed up and needing Jesus. That's what qualifies you to be here. And that's what qualifies anybody else to be involved in, in God's church, and be a part of his house. It is your need of him. It's the only fitness he requires is to recognize your need of him. And so small groups are a way of, of helping set each other right, of coming together and, and bringing some stability and relationally supporting each other weeping with those who weep and, and grieving over things that we're grieving over and celebrating what we need to celebrate together and, and trying to support and encourage each other. And that's a way that we can help each other heal. The other thing is uh, we talk about equipping believers to make disciples in their own sphere of influence, in their own world. And, and what that means is, is training or equipping people to be uh, missional people that, that do the ministry themselves, that, that are not just restored in their own relationship with God, but restored in their purpose. That, that just like Adam and Eve were, were called to extend paradise, their job was, okay, here's, here's paradise, multiply that in the whole world. Well, well, that's our call as well. That was kind of a pre-Great Commission there, and that's what we're called to. We are to extend paradise, extend God's healing out to others. So not just uh, gather together in small group community to encourage each other, but, but see ourselves as missionaries wherever God has put us. And so one of the core, core practices, core values of our church is that we would be trained, that we would train each other to, to impact our world, whether you're a teacher or a doctor or a lawyer or a soldier or wherever you're involved, whatever job God's called you to, whatever neighborhood he's called you to, that you would, you would love people well, that you would be equipped to minister to them. The last thing that we see is that God's house is a place for the humble to praise God's strength. It's a place for the humble to praise God's strength. Lift up, exalt that God is strong and, and we are not. That we're just children before him. We see this in 15 through 16. When the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. So they're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. They're saying, God, save us. You're the son of David. You're the Messiah we've been looking for. You're the king. And they're saying, God, save us. This is kind of a chant they would chant, kind of like hallelujah, like praise God. God, save us. Here's the son of David. God has sent someone to take care of us. 
And in verse 16, Jesus answers the religious leaders this way. He says, do you hear, excuse me, they ask him, do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him, yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? It's, it's fascinating that these children are praising him as the Messiah. Um, and Jesus answers back with a verse that doesn't say, haven't you read, there's this psalm, because he's quoting Psalm 8 here. Jesus, you would think Jesus would say, haven't you read in Psalm 8 where it says it's okay for children to uh, praise the Messiah and say, yay, the Messiah is here. He doesn't do that. He, he quotes a verse in Psalm 8 where it says, God has ordained that children would praise the strength of God. God has ordained that children would praise God. And Jesus is saying, that's what they're doing. When they're lifting me up, they're praising God. They're exalting the strength of God, which is Jesus. And Jesus says, and that's right for them to do. They should be doing that. Psalm 8 foretells that they will do that. It says that's the way God has set things up. And as I thought about this, I thought about how how hard it is as a church to continue to be a place that exalts God. As we are trying to live as God's house, both as an organization as and as individuals, how hard it can be to be God's house and to be a place where we exalt God's strength and not our own strength, right? Because really it's, it's tempting to be a place that lifts up ourselves and says, hey, look at me, look at how great I am. You know, you see this sometimes when people tell their Christian story. They talk about well, I didn't have Jesus and I had problems and then I met Jesus and everything's perfect now. You know, th those kinds of stories. And a lot of times God does that. I mean, my story was somewhat like that and then, you know, and then I realized I'm still a train wreck still after Jesus and I still need him. But, but I mean, sometimes God does these dramatic things. He, he, he cleans house, he fixes us and, and everything looks great. But, but what can happen, what can, we can fall into is this habit of saying that if you know Jesus, everything's perfect. And, and that to be the people of Jesus, you need to be people that are perfect and have it all together so you can say to people, hey, look at how strong I am, look at how great I am, you need to know Jesus. Instead of saying, I'm broken, I'm twisted, and Jesus is the only answer I've found. Jesus is the only answer I've found. I still trip, I still fall, but I know that Jesus is the answer. And yes, that will make us stronger, and yes, we will grow, and, and we will begin to put things behind us, but we're never perfect this side of heaven. And we need to continue to be people that point everyone to God as, as being the strong one. That we are just the children that humbly praise his strength. And I use the word praise God's strength because literally in Psalm 8, it's the word strength. It's, it's the word might. So it's not just the word praise. We think of praise as the actual act of saying you're great or singing or, or telling someone they're wonderful. Like the word worship to ascribe worth to someone um, but here he's literally in Psalm 8, it's the word strength, it's the word might. Children have been ordained to speak of God's might, his strength, how great he is. I, I just wanted to uh, do something a little different today. If you will look down under your chairs, someone should have an orange Bible in front of them. Anybody have an orange Bible? Not like right under your chair, but on the racks in front of you. Can you look in the little chair racks? Anybody have an orange Bible there? Anyone? Oh, there it is. All right. Here you go. You want a prize here. Here you go, Todd. Watch out. Watch you. There you go. My son came up with this idea of a cool thing we could do to uh, get people in the church, you know, giving away candy. And he found this orange Bible that he had. And he's like, yeah, this would really stick out. And we could put it under a chair. And I was like, that's, that's a great idea, buddy. Um, but, 
But generally, we're not that kind of church, right? I mean, generally, we're not the kind of church that, that does tricks to attract people and to try to draw them, not, try to draw them in. Um, and it's, it's a subtle line. And I want to be careful not to condemn churches uh, that do stuff like that. I mean, we give away coffee. We give away all kinds of things around here. So, you know, we're not, away, we're not against giving things away. But we need to be careful that we don't become this place where we're trying to lure people, right? We're trying to lure people in by our own attractiveness. This is the church of the free candy or, you know, this is the church of the whatever. Um, that we would be the church of, of weakness that's exalting God's strength. I mean, I, I, I joked earlier. I mean, if we wanted to be a, a church that's just based on getting people here because we're attractive, I would not be the pastor, right? I mean, it just, amen, thank you. We, we want to be a place that, that draws people to Jesus and says, he is what's attractive, not us, not this place. Um, if we wanted to be more attractive, we'd have different carpet, right? I mean, there, there's a lot of things that we would... It's a lot of things that we would change. You know? We don't go, hey, you need to come to this church. They've got pink tile and pink carpet. I mean, you've got to see it. This is the best place to be. No, we, we, we want people to come here and go, you can meet Jesus here. You can see God's strength. You can see him lifted up because that's the solution that God has brought. And that, that folds into to our other core practices of worship that's understandable and joyful and, and preaching that exposes God's word to both the curious and the committed. We, we want to be a place where we hinge on exalting his strength. In both the singing and the worship, we, we hope it would be understandable and, and a relevant language that people get, but it would ultimately be about lifting up Jesus and not ourselves. And when I try to preach from the scriptures, I'm trying to help you see him. Um, not that I'm clever or, or attractive or any of those things, but but that you would see the scriptures and you'd see how they lift up God as the solution to our problems. That, that you would see that he is the strength that we have to draw on. And that will continue to be a central core practice at this church as well. We have uh, the, the seventh core practice that I haven't mentioned is, is having elder leadership. Um, our church, there's three words that are used interchangeably for leadership of the local church. In the Bible, and those words are pastor, which is also the word shepherd, pastor, shepherd, just two different ways of saying shepherd. Um, the word overseer, sometimes translated as bishop, and that word, kind of like shepherd, speaks to what a church leader should be doing. They should be looking out. Uh, and you get the word episkopos, which you get episcopal church, and some other words from that. But basically, it just means an overseer, someone that's looking out, watching out for people, right? And then the word elder, which just kind of has that chief or, or leader concept in it, you know, the, the senior officer type concept in the way that word is used. And those three different words are just three words that describe having leaders in the local church that are watching out for the sheep, trying to make sure they're fed and well taken care of. And, and Jesus is, is living out that core practice for us by cleaning out the temple, by coming in and saying, this is not what the house is supposed to be for, but this is what the house is supposed to be for. And so just final core practice that I would mention is that final one, that we will always have people that are committed here as leaders to saying, this, this is Jesus. This is the Bible. This is what we're supposed to be about. These other things, they're not really worth our time. We're not about those things. And there's always going to be leadership here doing that. It'll be different people that change over the years, but they'll always be committed to trying to make sure that, that God's house is committed to, to God's things and God's priority and that we are people after God's own heart. I want to close with the final verse, verse 17. It says, And he left them. 
And he went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. And I think this final verse is a warning to us. Uh, we know from the other accounts and from these accounts too that he continued to come back in, in and out of the city and he didn't completely leave Jerusalem at this point. Um, but Matthew is a good writer and he closes this section helping us to see that he left. And he closes it as a warning to us that, that help us to see that Jesus was not accepted there in Jerusalem in the capital by God's people. But he was accepted out on the outskirts by others that loved him. And it, it's a warning to us because we are God's people, right? I mean, if you're in a church, you're at least pretending to be God's people. You're at least trying it out. You're at least sticking your toes in the water. You may not be committed. You may just be checking us out, and that's great. But, but if we're church people, we're at some level saying we're God's people or we want to be, and we need to be careful to see that, that people that are called his people, that have his name, are not always his people. And that when we reject him, when we say, no, we don't want you, we want to be about our little religious game, he, he will leave. He'll say, okay, I'll, I'll go be with people that love me. We understand him to be staying at Mary and Martha and Lazarus's house, right? His friends that we see in other gospel stories. He's staying with them. They love him. And he left. He left Jerusalem. Now we'll see more interaction. He'll come back and go out and come back and go out. Um, but I just want us to be warned. I want us to take that to heart. That even if we are called God's people, we shouldn't, we shouldn't use that as some kind of superstitious uh, safety net. That we're going to be fine because we have his name but that we should be about his priorities, that we should trust in him and, and what he wants for us. Let's pray. Father God, we, we pray that, just as I prayed earlier, that your spirit would lead us, that we would not rely on our own strength, on our flesh, on ourselves, but that we would rely on you, and that your spirit would lead us, that we would be humble, and that we would be dependent and we pray for this physical place, that this would be a place where you are lifted up and that people get to see the King. We pray for the worldwide church, for your people all over the world in every corner of the globe, that, that we would be a place wherever we are, wherever we're scattered, that people would see you, that they would see the King. And, and for each of us as individuals, that wherever you place us, we know you've appointed the times and the seasons for us to live and the places that you put us pray that you would use us uh, to be your house, to show the world that, yes, we are broken and we are sinful, but there is a solution, that the God of the universe gave his son for us. We praise you for that, for your strength, not our idea, but your salvation that you give us only in Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name.